podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So welcome to the latest edition of Macklin's Take Everybody. It's, it's fight day. It's the lunchtime before the big bill at the O2 between Dillian White and Oscar Rivas. And myself, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin, we are just sat in the lobby of the Intercontinental Hotel. This is basically wedged onto the end of the O2 and it's where the great and the good stay during fight week. Matt Macklin has a penthouse suite on the top floor that, that Sky pay for. It's absolutely outrageous. You can only get up there via a private lift with a, with a gold key card. But uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm glad to say that he's not up there alone because his neighbour up in those august surroundings who has a suite next door has joined us. The man with the most recognisable voice in boxing. One of the most recognisable voices probably across sport. And it is Hall of Fame MC, Mr. Michael Buffer. Michael, thank you very Good much. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for giving us some of your time this lunchtime. I mean, let me add something here. You know, for those of us that are listening, and it's it's not on video. Uh, Matthew Macklin is uh, showing off his legs and his physique <laughs> with a pair of short shorts. I don't know what's going on, but I, I, I guess it's okay. People are are walking by and giving him a big stare, but that's okay. Well, you know, I hit the gym. I was intending yeah. to hit the gym. Didn't quite happen. But uh, anyway, that's why I'm dressed in this attire. <laughs> well, as you say, it's off camera. We can be very informal on Macklin's take. And that's very much how we like it. And, Michael, when you look around this place, it's, it's, you've been at the top of your game for a long time now. And you get treated accordingly. And, and you've earned it. It's, it's, it's only right. But I can't help but wonder, what was fight day like on day one for Michael Buffer? on debut when you did this for the very first time I'm guessing it wasn't intercontinental hotels and cocktails on the back balcony with Macklin well (laughs) back in those days I lived in Philadelphia and the way I got started was they had all these fights uh, 65 miles away in Atlantic City New Jersey and so it was a you know an hour and 10 minute ride for me and I got my foot in the door they just had fights three and four and sometimes five times a week local fights weekend fights on TV and uh, I was really, really quite dreadful and uh, didn't even know how to, I never saw a scorecard before in front of my face until I got in the ring and it was uh, the hands were shaking, the flop sweat was there and it was six months before I got another shot Any moments of blind panic early on where you think, oh my god I've forgotten my tuxedo, I've forgotten my shoes I've forgotten my cue cards my car's going to break down. You know, all of these things run through people's minds, basically, because you need an ordered mind to do, to do, to do your job, to do what we're doing, too. And, and the last thing you need are, are last-minute crises. But we all have them at times. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, it's funny you would mention that about all the different things that you bring to the ring with you. I have had, I haven't had it for a while, but for years, I would have a recurring dream that I can't, I, I, it's time to start, time to go to work, and I... I either can't get to the ring, I'm like up in the upper deck and there's no way of getting down the steps and nobody's helping me, or I get there and all my notes are missing. And uh, I I used to have that recurring dream for years I would have that. It's crazy, but uh, I'll tell you a funny story in regards to that. It was before a Mike Tyson fight at uh, some guy named Donald Trump had these uh, hotels in Atlantic City. So it's a Trump Plaza, and true story, I'm going down in the elevator, and I'm with a few other folks. The doors open, and somebody, uh, a couple of women, come on. And she said, oh, your tie's crooked. And she undid my tie, snatched it, and ran out the elevator door. <laughs> and I had to wear the tie of one of the, like the maitre d' from the restaurant or something that night. And uh, 
I'm sure you know I'm a pretty fuzzy dresser, and I was like devastated that I didn't have my own tie. <laughs> but uh, crazy things happen. Well, Matt, it's 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 something to tick off the list, isn't it? To be introduced to the ring by Michael Buffer, it's a real bucket list thing for a, a lot of fighters, and. You know that's a great compliment to yourself, but it, but it's true, isn't it? It's not just flattery, fighters. No, no. You know, it's it's without a doubt. I mean, when I fought the first time, Michael introduced me was when I fought Felix Sturm in Cologne in Germany for the world title, and uh, it, you know it was the Lanxess Arena. It was sold out. Sturm, big big name over there, and um, you know I was a big fight for him. I was ranked in the top five of the Ring Magazine. I was uh, been European champion, so it was. Uh, he'd had a couple of fights on his own under his own promotional banner, and I think the fight with me, they seen that as the the big. First big fight, really, um, and I think they thought that I was probably on the slide a bit. I'd had a tough fight against a guy called Ruben Varane, who Sturm had beaten fairly comfortably over points, and I'd had a tough fight with him. Little did they know I was ill for that fight, and you know that, that probably attributed to the uh, below par performance. But anyway, when uh, Michael was there fight week, and when oh, sorry, yeah, on the night of the fight, at the press conference uh, at the weigh-in, etc. It, it really did bring that big fight feel. It was like, right, this really is another level now. And, and, and that's, you know, Michael introduced... Didn't make you nervous, though, did it? <laughs> no, I was, do you know what? That was one of those fights where I, everything had gone so well. The sparring had gone well. There'd been no injuries. The weight was good. You know when you just know it's your time? And I felt like that. I don't think... I wouldn't have cared if it was King Kong in the corner that, that night. I just felt so good. And when Michael... Uh, but when Michael done the let's get ready to rumble, it was like, whoa, it did, did uh, send a few shivers down my spine. But it, it just added to the excitement because I was, you know, so ready. And I actually remember when uh, we were waiting for the decision, Michael, turned, before he got announced, before he started talking, he says, looks like we're going to Dublin, you know, for the rematch. Do you remember, do you remember saying that to me in the ring, Michael? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it was a good fight and it just it deserved a rematch, but... Uh, um, Felix got some pretty good uh, decisions in Germany quite a few times. Yeah. <laughs> One time he actually got it the, the other way around, but uh, maybe that was you know uh, fate coming back to haunt him. One thing I was going to ask you was that kind of scenario where you've watched loads of fights and, and you'll have an idea or an opinion at least when the fight finishes of, of what you're expecting to see when you get that score sheet handed to you. Now, when you get the sheet handed to you it's always an interesting moment I find to have a really good look at the MC when they get the sheet because sometimes if it's if it's what you're expecting you'll compute it quick and you'll give the signal pretty quick you and, and, and David and, and all colleagues other times you'll see yourself look at the sheet hard am I seeing this like right you, like, exactly, yeah. like you can't quite believe it have there ever been instances where out of courtesy almost and out of kind of respect for the ringside supervisor you've gone back to them and just said look are you sure I'm not talking about the interpretation of the fight but have you put the scores in the wrong boxes are you sure I I did that once and it came back to haunt me uh, well over 20 years ago and it was um, I think it was uh, Ray Mancini and uh, and Camacho in Reno, Nevada and the Nevada Commission is, uh, they, um, they consider themselves to be a, a level above everyone else. So you don't question them. And I actually, like, sort of, like, held it out. And I said, are, are, are we sure about this? <laughs> and I got, uh, like, a week or two later, I got a, a letter 
that uh, my license would be in jeopardy and that I need to apologize and all that. And so I guess I should keep my, my opinions and my own scoring to myself, but uh, that, was, that was one time that happened. The other times, uh, perhaps, you know, you may have lay eyes on me and you'll see, uh, I, I try not to show like, what the, you know. And uh, there have been a few, like I think when um, Pacquiao and Bradley, the first fight, when everyone thought that uh, Pacquiao won it by a mile and it, it went to uh, Bradley, um, it, it's sometimes it's almost laughable. You, you have to just keep it to yourself. And uh, um, that's, that's the judges. That's what happens. Have there been any occasions either when you get the sheet and you just think, maybe not so much on the big fights, maybe more in the early days when the crowd are possibly a little bit more volatile. The promoter can't necessarily pay for that much security. Might have cut a few corners. We, we all know things that can go on where you get the sheet and you just think, wow, there's going to be a riot when I read this out. They're not going to like this. And you just think, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it the way I always do it. And then I will look to try and get under the ring. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, that's probably happened. I, I I can't recall it right now. I'm I'm sure that has happened where it's a little uh, get a little nervous because you know you're in the wrong uh, state or city or whatever for this decision to be read. But um, usually, fight fans are pretty well educated on the fact that they can expect the unexpected. And uh, while you know you'll hear you know boos, jeers, whistles uh, for a decision that doesn't go the way a lot of the fans see it um it, it, that's never really happened the worst case scenario of course was when uh, riddick bow fought andrew golada and there was a full-scale riot in madison square garden where the cops had to come and people were running into the ring and that that was insane that wasn't because of a decision that was because uh Gallotta, who was winning the fight just kept throwing uh body shots about a foot south below of, the belt. South of I the mean, border. Li- literal crotch <laughs> shots. And they had to just disqualify him and the whole place went crazy. I remember watching that fight. It was, I stayed up till like four o'clock in the morning and uh, yeah, I couldn't believe it, man. Like the, the riot afterwards was better than the fight. And the fight was pretty good. I mean, Galada it performed so well. You just, like you say, he was winning easily. You couldn't, it was kind of insane what he did. It was like blatant low blows in, in a fight that it was so far, it must have been so far ahead on the cards. And he had Bo beaten. Yeah, Galata was just, had some amazing things happen in his career where he, he would be winning a fight and bail out. I think, I think it was, he was fighting Michael Grant in Atlantic City and he's winning the fight by a mile. And he kind of got stunned in the final round and quit. And, and he was a minute away from victory. So, uh, yeah, you never know. There must have been some pretty extraordinary characters that you've rubbed shoulders with over the course of the time you've been, been doing Sorry, this. Sorry, Andy, can I just interrupt there? I just wanted to ask Michael this, because I was just thinking of when you said about bad decisions and because of the timing and because of his passing recently. I was wondering if you were the uh, MC when the great, late Pernal Whitaker, Julio Cesar Chavez... No, I, I wasn't there. I remember the fight clearly because I, I was hired by a uh, casino hotel to MC their party, which I ended up making about three more times uh, the money than I would have as the ring announcer, so I was quite happy. <laughs> as a fan, I would have wanted to be there. It was in uh, San Antonio at the Alamo Dome, I believe. And like almost everyone that saw the fight, Whitaker won the fight by a mile. He completely dominated the fight. The great thing about Pernell Whitaker 
it wasn't just his elusiveness and his brilliant defense. He, he uh, had a great jab, and while he didn't have a lot of knockouts, he was very, very physically strong. And Chavez used to love that to throw that, that left hook to the liver and like really work inside. And when they would get into that clinch, which was, was Chavez's uh, territory, Whitaker would just lock him up like a vice, and you could see, like, like, wow, this this guy's really strong. And I, and I I've talked to guys. Uh, there's a famous American football player that's from Virginia Beach in Norfolk, Virginia. We're good friends with Whitaker, and he told me they would play basketball. And this guy is like six five, two hundred and seventy pounds, and he said Whitaker. It was like one of these little dogs that always just went up against the big dogs. He just was a, a physical, hard-nosed player in basketball, boxing, whatever he wanted to do. He was just really a, a tough guy, and his physical strength was underrated uh, by a lot of fighters, especially in the clinch. Uh, didn't have that, that big KO power, but he was a brilliant tactician and a brilliant fighter. I, I love doing his fights. Absolutely. Go on, you were saying, Andy. I was just saying that you must have met a very diverse range of characters doing the job. But what I found, being on the inside of boxing for just the last few years, a handful of years compared to yourself, is that often people aren't quite what they seem. And particularly in fight week, their characters, their personalities can change a little bit. Was Is there anyone in particular who maybe, when you were early in your career, you had a kind of preconception of what they might be like? And then when you actually met them, you thought... No, they were totally different, really. Well, you know, the, the three of us all know that uh, fighters, for uh, generally, and, and most of them are pussycats. They're great guys. They're really nice guys. They're good guys. They're, they're probably better sportsmen, you know, uh, except for sometimes the shoving and, and that sort of thing that goes on. They get, but when it comes to uh, the way everybody in the boxing community treats each other you see a lot of really good guys. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, tomorrow night we've got uh, Dillian fighting. And now we all, Dillian's one of the nicest guys you want to meet and be around. He's pleasant. He's, you know, um, David Hay, uh, Tony Bellew, Lennox Lewis. You know, I've been around all these guys. And they're sweethearts. They're fun to be with. They're, they're, you, know, you, you sit down and have a meal and you get great stories. Evander Holyfield. And, uh, you know, I did, I did 19 Mike Tyson fights. And the, the best thing I love about Mike at this stage of his life is that he's happy in his own skin. You know, he's just, he's happily married. He's got the children. He's, he's just a, a down-to-earth guy. That comes with maturity. Uh, you know, Mike in his early years, in his early 20s and everything, uh, had a lot of demons, you know, and, and didn't have the right people around him looking out for his best interests. And, uh, you know, while he was a great, great fighter in the ring and uh, always, as he would say, wants to punch with the bad intentions, uh, he, was, he was a pretty decent guy. I remember in his early days before he was a champ and doing, uh, he was like the, the undercard fighter and I'd go into the dressing room and he was 19 years old. And he would just say, yeah, hi, Mr. Buffer, how's your sons? How, it just, he was a, a good guy to be around. But, man, he was something else in the ring, though. We know that. Was the electricity around Tyson fights, was that almost as good as it's got during the course of your career? Because 
the kind of charge in the air, the feeling, the mood when, when, when Iron Mike was on his way to the ring was, I mean, it's kind of like nothing else that I've watched in the time that I've been boxing because he was so dangerous and everybody knew it. That late 80s period, he was, you were tuning in and you, you didn't want it to go more than two rounds. And that wasn't what you wanted. You wanted to see him come to the ring in the poncho and the black boots looking mean and then clean someone out. And that, that was always what we got. I mean, it was, you know shiver down the spine stuff really yeah it really was and uh, that you've hit the nail on the head there you know how you anticipate a big fight and you want to see a good fight and sometimes if it's the first or second round and it's over you feel like ah, you know I didn't, I didn't get my money's worth especially if you're at home you're paying for it on, on box office or uh, pay-per-view and um but with tyson that's exactly what the fans anticipated and they weren't disappointed you know, when he fought uh, Michael Spinks, the atmosphere was insane in the arena. It was, it just, you, you, could, you could smell it, you could feel it. It was just the anticipation. And the celebrity list, thank God, was huge because, I don't know if you remember, Mike and uh, uh, Mike and Mike, they didn't come out of the dressing rooms for like 40 minutes late. Because there was something about, uh, I, I don't know, something about one guy who didn't want to come out right away or just some nonsense. Tyson is, is always so intense before a fight back in those days. And uh, I, the story was that he actually punched a hole in the wall in the dressing room. And, and so what we had to do in the arena was I started introducing celebrities at ringside. I mean, it was, it was the who's who of, of movies and TV and sports back in that day. You know, Madonna... And uh, her husband then was Sean Penn. And, I mean, it was an unbelievable list. And, and of course, you know, the Donald and, and all his buddies. And uh, the, uh, I had people, like, running up to me, like, go, go tell me who else is here. And they would give me a name. And I would, like, introduce, you know, the owner of the New York Yankees. And it just everything that came to mind and everything you could find to fill that time and kind of made it into an event that kept people from, you don't want to hear that clapping and booing for 20 minutes before a fight. But then I remember when uh, Frank Cappuccino, the referee who just passed away a few years ago, gave instructions at Ring Center. I looked over at Spinks, and his pulse was just banging in his neck and underneath his sternum. You could just see it. I, I don't think it had anything to do with fear. I think it was just pure adrenaline and anxiety. And Tyson just looked like steam was coming off his body by then. I went I, out of the ring. I sat down on the steps because I knew this fight was going to end. And 91 seconds later, I was back in the ring. Just an amazing display of brute power. And it's exactly what you said. You anticipated that with Mike Tyson back then. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, listening to you tell the story and, and, and the bit I know about it uh, myself, it, it, it seems like that, it, that it, that's probably one of the most memorable fights events that you've ever done yeah it was an event it became it became an event because tyson was uh considered by everyone to be the heavyweight champion of the world and uh michael spinks and who's a great guy but he was um what was it, what was the name of his manager and promoter oh butch lewis butch lewis was a brilliant guy and a clever manipulator and he just kept that uh i forget which title it was that that Spinks had he had one of the titles I don't know if it was a fringe title or what but 
basically this was the battle of champions, just like Ali Frazier was the first time they met. And, uh, you know, tried to make it in that this would be for the undisputed title, even though everyone considered Mike to be undisputed champ. Fighters, as you say, are great to deal with and much more easy to deal with than people might think. But they can sometimes be a little bit difficult. And I found if any of us make a factual error, that error, then, of course, you know, you have to hold your hands up to that if we get their record wrong or anything like that. But every now and again, they can... I remember one fighter, for example, saying to me, you got my record wrong last time you covered me. And I thought, pretty sure I didn't. So I checked and I hadn't. And next time I saw him, I said, no, I didn't, I didn't. Um, and he said, no, you did, because you announced that as a draw, what you would call a no contest. He goes, it wasn't, it wasn't. I knocked him out. And that, that should be a knockout. I count that as a knockout on my record. And I said, well, that's great, but I can't, <laughs> I, I can't really go with that. But they... Is anybody? They do do things like that sometimes. They'll they'll kind of pick you up on minor points that aren't really factual, but you just have to do your best to kind of. You know, I've actually run into to the opposite where um, a fighter doesn't even know his record. Uh, you know, usually an undercard guy or something. But you know, going way back to the old days where I would do every fight the whole night, I would always go back and double check to make sure I had the right colors for their trunks and their record. I mean, and I would say, you know, is this correct? Uh, you're ten and two with three KOs. And a guy would turn to his manager and say, what's my record again? <laughs> so sometimes we find guys that actually weren't on top of what their records were. But uh, usually that wasn't among the elite fighters or the fighter that was fighting for a championship. Pre-internet, of course. Since I've been this, doing this, this pre-internet job, pre-internet is not, pre- that, pre- not that long ago. You it's know. not that long ago, I know, I know, exactly. But it would have made the job more difficult, without a doubt more difficult. I mean, where would you, would you rely on promoters for your information, managers, fighters themselves? Where did you get it from? Yeah, today, I mean, all I have to do is, is whip my iPad out in my uh, hotel room and get all the information from, I can just contact the promoter or whoever's handling certain stats or you have somebody that sends all the information to all of us and that sort of thing. Uh, 25 years ago and beyond, I had to, you know, chase all these guys down and, and get the information. Welcome. Obviously, you were you from Philadelphia, and I'm just wondering: did you do um, did you cover many of Russell Peltz shows at the uh, Blue Horizon, or was that kind of before? Or yeah, I, I worked at the Blue Horizon quite a few times uh, when Top Rank would put shows on there on ESPN in America, and uh, but I, I never worked for Russell. Russell used uh, a, a guy that's since passed away quite a few years now. Is uh, Ed Darian was his regular announcer. Hey. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital podcast coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go. This is so crazy. Okay, I've heard you a few times. You know, we've been in company. You were talking about back in the day of the Don King era. 
Tell us one of the one of your favorite stories about Don King. Don's still around, so I'm going to have to wait till I retire so I can tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there's some great uh, there's some great stories because you know, uh, as a fan, there's a lot of things you wish he hadn't done that you know you'd rather see this fight made or that fight made or happen or events or uh, you'd be happy to know that some guy literally is living in retirement and has all his money as opposed to being dead broke, but. Um, you know, Don is a showman, and he's, uh, you know, one of the legendary characters of boxing. Uh, Don is very verbal in the ring. And, you know, he always comes in with the flags and uh, the, for the fighters and for the country that he's in, and he's got flags waving and all that. And when Ricky Hatton made his debut in America, it was in Boston. And uh, in a smaller arena, a really horrible PA system. And Floyd Patterson had died in the week leading up to that. Floyd Patterson is like one of my heroes. And I used to always have this argument with the uh, the TV production. Don't do a 10 count with the fighters in the ring because you're you're, you're stepping on the fans' uh, excitement. Fighters come to the ring. And here you're going to play the music. They enter the ring. It's Ricky Hatton's pro debut. And they wanted me to then kill the crowd and kill that energy by doing a 10 count for the first fighter ever to win the heavyweight title two times, you know, capture it uh, after losing it. And, uh, and a personal hero of mine when I was a kid, Floyd Patterson. So I, I lost the argument. They want to do it then. And, and here's all these uh, fans for Ricky Hatton and, and in the ring. And Don King had his opponent. I think it was uh, Collazo. And so I'm going, you know, ladies and gentlemen, at this time, and I'm trying to set it up with with the respect it deserves for the passing of a, of a Hall of Fame fighter. And behind me, the PA system was horrible. Don can't hear what's going on. And all you hear behind me is, only in America, only in America. <laughs> Puerto Rico, you know. And, it, and I, it's because it's coming in, into the, and on TV, the same thing. That's all they hear is, uh, you know, Don King bellowing behind me. And then finally, after about three or four dongs into the 10 count, uh, he finally stops, and we get a, you know a little bit of a ten count, but uh, that's done. It's not his fault that time, but but it, yeah. it's just I remember that so clearly. I, I remember that fight. I was in the corner uh, with Ricky Hatton because we had the same trainer at the time, Billy Graham. That was a tough fight. So, you know, we, we, uh, Ricky had Colazzo down, I think, inside the first ten or fifteen seconds, and I think thought, right, this is going to be a easy night, and it turned into a hell of a fight. And uh, last round was a. It was a tough one, but he, he gritted it through and got got the decision. But uh, and I remember Don King actually in the press conference saying, uh, you know, speaking highly of Hatton and uh, you know saying that he was a very welcome addition to, you know, boxing in America, etc. But uh, yeah, Don King was definitely like I say, didn't really bit before my era being up there. But he was. Uh, I remember watching him on the TV all the time. Big big character. I was I was preferred Ricky Hatton. I mean, because he he was a star coming into America, and that that fight should have been in New York. And, you know, let's face it, uh, all the fans from Manchester and everything could fly nonstop and bring their empty suitcases with them, go shopping, take clothes home. It would have had a bigger crowd than yeah. Boston. Yeah, it was a bad it was a bad move and it was a strange move. You know, Ricky going up to welterweight to fight Southpaw in Boston. You know, he, yeah, strange. That was a strange move that time, big time. So when did you first come here then? When did you first start to get the call regularly to come over to the UK? Actually, the very first time I came here, Frank Warren brought me over for a, uh, a fight in St- 
Stratford, was it? I think uh, just uh, outside of Manchester. Yeah, I think it was Tony Simpson. Stratford like or Salford, maybe. Was that against Marvin Hagler? Tony Simpson? He did fight ha- Hagler uh, before that, but Sibbo uh, was fighting. I, I think it was Tony Simpson. And it was um, around 1987, oh, somewhere in there. It, it, it just seems. And that, that was the first time I came and worked in, uh, in the UK. And I remember. A, uh, we were having a delay from American TV and the crowd was getting restless and here we're like dragging it out and so earlier there had been a, uh, a stink bomb, an ammonia bomb somebody, you know, some clown always does something and so I announced to the crowd that we, uh, there was still a residual effect in the ring and we had to wait for it to clear and they were like oh, oh okay okay that's cool you know so the crowds all shut up and just started singing and whatever and uh yeah you always have to uh sometimes as an mc you have to uh, put a little bit of bullshit out there so uh, one time i remember was a fight broke out in resorts international we used to do fights in the theater and the ring would be right in front of the stage and then it was just like you know, a theater like in Vegas and Atlantic City, you have all the banquettes. It's not regular chairs and, and uh, you know, the different levels. And so a fight broke out in the audience. And uh, so I introduced Frank Sinatra as, as though he was there. Of course, he wasn't there. And the two guys <laughs> fighting actually stopped to see, to see where Frank Sinatra was. And security grabbed him and took him out of there. But... Sometimes you have to ad-lib a little bit. So I found the fighter thing. This is a great example of what we are just talking about. In, in these days, I can pull this up straight away. Bingley Hall, Stafford, Staffordshire. Tony Simpson against Frank Tate for the IBF World Middleweight title. That sounds like, that sounds like the one. So that was... What year was that? That was February 1988. Okay, going back a bit. It's I remember I, went, I stayed in London for a few days and it was very cold, so February sounds right. It's not exactly a tourist destination, Stafford. If it's, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't really... I don't, I don't want to get a torrent of tweets from Stafford-based Macklin's Take fans here just abusing us, but it's not really the kind of place that you would spend your own money no, to he, go he to if you come Leicester, over from America. Wasn't he? Simpson was Leicester, Shear or Leicester that way, so that probably was where it made sense to do it. But you seem to very much enjoy coming over here. Uh, we see you regularly here now, of course. And what have you made of what has happened over the last four or five years? People have been talking about a British boxing boom over the last four, five years in particular. And it goes in cycles of sport, doesn't it? Because Hatton brought a similar thing along. Nassim Hamed brought a similar burst along. You saw all of that. Is, has this one been different? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, the thing you're holding in your hand makes a big difference in, in the way... Um, more fighters from uh, the UK have gotten uh, respect and notoriety and I, what is it like 12 or 13 world championships at one point uh, a couple of years ago all at the same time we're right here in the UK and it, because uh, you're, and now we have European fighters and uh, you got uh, a Polish fighter you know that's a big star uh, fighting on the card tonight and uh, the the ability of fans and with telecommunications and with social media it's become more global and more international and that's really contributed to the fact that the history that i've seen in the uk is great loyal knowledgeable fans 
they've always had the crowds here. They've always had the support for fighters. I mean, I remember doing some of those uh, Nazim fights in Manchester, and uh, there would be a, a four-round fighter from uh, Yorkshire on the undercard, and he had 800 people come just to see him fight. That, that's loyalty, and that's, the fan base was always here. So now that's transcending because everybody everywhere gets to see all these fights. These fights that are broadcast on zone to America, they get to see the entire undercard. They get to see some kid that's in a four-round fight, in a six-rounders and eight-rounders. And good fight fans like to watch that stuff. So it just, it, it all, you know, adds to the, uh, the boom we have in boxing. And I, I really think it is a boom. I mean, people say MMA is killing boxing. Just go to that internet and look at how many fights there are in South America, in Europe, in the United States, and then how many MMA events are there. It's a big difference. You have UFC, which does massive crowds because they have loyal fans, but they're not doing eight shows a week. Boxing is doing 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 shows a week with world title fights every week. And they're world title fights, not just the promoter's title. And over the last few years, of course, we've been to Wembley three times. Uh, Cardiff twice, so three Wembley Stadium fights, two Cardiff fights. And I just wonder what it's like when you're, when you're standing in the middle of the ring in Wembley Stadium. Because... I did a little bit of emceeing a while ago, not at Wembley Stadium. I'm not Carl Frotch in front of 80,000 people. But what I found strange about it, which I wasn't expecting, was that when you're standing in the middle of the ring and the lights come on, you then can't really see anybody. You can't really see anyone. You can't really see anyone in the crowd. So you're standing in the middle of Wembley Stadium, in the middle of the ring, however many million people watching it, but you're doing it for the arena rather than for TV. It ends up being both, of course but there's 90,000 people there and you can't see any of them. It's a weird little kind of cocoon that you're in there. Yeah, it's... <clears throat> I'll tell you what kind of like hit me when they, uh, that movie about Freddie Mercury came out last year and they show that scene and you can go to YouTube and see it where he did the, uh, the concert and you see the crowd and it's dusk. It's still a daylight, you know, the end of the day when he starts to perform. And you see that crowd, and I think to myself, oh my God, I was there with 90,000 people, and it's the same sea of, of, of people and everything, but you're right, I don't get to see it. It's all in the black. I see all the little lights from their, their cameras that are on and that sort of thing, you know, their cell phones. And it really hit me, like, you know, I kind of had that, you know, when uh, Freddie Murphy goes, Deo, and, he, you know, they all come back at him. And when I said, uh, are you ready? And the wave of sound came back, like, from all around me. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. And, uh, of course, I, you know, I, I get to say, let's get ready to rumble and feel the same thing. But the energy and the excitement of that Klitschko-Joshua fight is really, really hard to surpass. When, when AJ entered and came into that center platform down at the one end of the stadium, and then it went up in the air, and he turned to the, to the back end of the stadium and gave the fans this as the flames went up. Woo! Oh, that was, that was hot. That was exciting. And you do like a bit of Sweet Caroline as well. Oh, yeah, I love that song. <laughs> That's, I'd love to get in there and, and get the crowd going with that. 
Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. I mean, Matt, we're just just uh, talking yesterday. We won't keep you for much longer because I think the I think the deal we struck yesterday was for half an hour with an option to extend for a further fifteen minutes. That was in the fine Sounds print. Like a I'm not sure. Contract. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure if you checked yeah. it. You that was that in the fine print. Well, yeah. we we can we can go into that later. But um, yeah, we were just thinking that. I know you've covered other stuff outside boxing, Stanley Cup, baseball. I think you were over for a Scottish football cup final a couple Scottish of years cup ago. Scottish cup final. Too. I did. Uh, uh, the Chelsea-Liverpool uh, game last year when the sprinkler hit me. Did you, did you ever see that or hear about that, yeah. it? Yeah, that was brilliant. Um, but it occurred to us that you must have been made some mad offers down the years because you, you hear about pop stars, for example, being offered unbelievable amounts of money to go and perform at a private wedding, for example, and they do it. Why wouldn't they do it? Somebody must have asked you to, to, to you know, Never mind the license, Michael. Can you come and marry us? Can you MC our wedding? Can you MC my son's bar mitzvah? They need deep pockets, but people must have asked you to do some crazy stuff. Uh, yeah, there are some some big moments there where uh, you know you, you make a, a couple of bucks, and um, I've done uh, bar mitzvahs. Uh, I did actually get a license and performed a wedding once. Uh, I've been there for uh, an, an elderly lady's um, uh, birthday as a surprise and uh, for a very wealthy gentleman in the uh, eastern part of the United States. And uh, there was one birthday party I did for uh, an 11-year-old. And I know I made a, a, a nice payday, but included in this thing, it was back when I used to do uh, WCW wrestling. And this guy was a hedge fund manager with a mansion in Connecticut. And he also brought in about eight of the biggest wrestling stars on the planet at that time. And those guys used to make millions in the 90s. There was like a big war going on between the two promoters. And uh, that was quite amazing. You know, that, it's just, uh, you're right. Some people have deep pockets and they, they want to do some great things. I, I have a job coming up in Abu Dhabi in a few weeks that's quite... Uh, It'll be a fun. It'll be a fun job to do. That's for sure. Do they always want? Do you at some point have private to private jet? All that stuff. It's insane. Whatever it is, though, do you at some point have to say? Do they always want you to say, "Let's get ready to rumble," whether it's really yeah. appropriate or not? Uh, I mean, when you're marrying someone, when you're conducting a wedding, how, where do you fit that in? Uh, for the wedding, I didn't say let's get ready to rumble, but uh, I, I, you know, I have said that at, uh, at a few more for the consummation over, over of the, the years. I mean, everybody knows the tagline. It's 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 a great tagline, and I know you had a go at a at two or three others before you finally came up with it. But at what point was something like that? At what point did you realise? Yeah, I think this is the one. I think this is the one. You got a bit of a bit of love from the crowd. People responded to it, and you thought, yeah, this is the other ones weren't weren't. Yeah, they weren't bad, yeah, but this, this one seems to work. Man your battle stations, or ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts. And yeah, there was nothing happening there. And but the whole reason I I wanted to have a catchphrase or to have just have a line before I introduced the fighters was years ago, and I've I've sort of like in my own campaign of tamped it down. Now other ring announcers don't have to do this too, uh, but we were introducing everybody in the commission, 
And if you had a unification fight, you would have like your WBC and WBA presidents and supervisors. Uh, the state commission, like in New Jersey, it would be uh, a chairman and a vice chairman and four board members and then three judges and four doctors. And you killed the crowd. Here you had all the energy and excitement of today's boxing with, you know, fighters coming to the ring with music and big PA systems and it's exciting. And you've just you've taken everything out of the room. You've just killed it. So I wanted to get some energy back when it, now you're going to meet the stars of the show. And, and as a fan who, even as a kid, I used to love to watch the baseball game, all-star game, and they would introduce each player and the crowd would roar and and uh, watching the fights from the old days where they'd bring Rocky Marciano or Sugar Ray Robinson up into the ring from the audience and the place would go. Fans love that. You know, they love nostalgia, they love it, and they love to hear their stars introduced. So I wanted to set that up to get that energy back. And I used to do it um, because I, I wasn't doing it to bring attention to myself. I wanted people to know they're going to meet the stars of the show. So when I would say, let's get ready to rumble, when a very, in the old days, I would say, uh, you know, let's get ready to rumble. Ten rounds of boxing, uh, you know, introducing for, I would just roll right into it. I didn't. And so a few years into it, I met a guy in L.A. who had actually had been a, a, a singer and for years was the opening act in the supper clubs for Ella Fitzgerald, the great, uh, the great singer. And this guy, Jody Berry, was Mr. Show Business. And he had just the whole feeling for timing and pacing and everything. And we were out having a couple of drinks, and he said, Michael, when you say, let's get ready to rumble, shut the hell up. I said, what do you mean, Jody? And he said, the fans want to react. He said, you've got something that, that has some field and energy to it. And he said, so when you say it, just pause and then start the introductions. And that was the best advice I ever got. And it made a big difference in, in the trademark and being able to market it and everything else well that's it it's the it's the music of it we all know it's coming we all know you're building up to it for those in attendance and the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world we know it's coming we know it's coming it's like a it's like a kind of we're just waiting for that wave to crash and then when you say it and every it, it really is it's, it's a moment every time you do it the bigger the arena the bigger the occasion of course the bigger it is but from your point of view you're off to the to the fights later on of course and you'll have your regime routine today you'll do I guess what you what you normally do to prepare but do you ever I wouldn't have thought you get nervous but the nervous energy still flows is it always a little bit of a relief when you get the first couple of sentences out and they're solid and, and they're good because we all we, no matter how experienced we are we all we all want a good start don't we yeah I, I don't get nervous uh, if it's like a, a super fight I get the, uh, the fan in me says, I can't wait to get out of the ring and watch the fight. I mean, I actually, I, you know, I still love the fights. I love the big fights. And uh, tonight, I think it's going to have that, that energy is going to be there. The O2 is a great place to have a fight. And um, I, well, I say I, I don't get nervous. I, I do have, there's like, like anxiety or the anticipation of, of things being really exciting. And I can feel my own adrenaline, you know, kicking in. And, and I'll even say to myself, like, wow, man, I'm really, you know, it's almost, I almost have to keep from laughing that I'm, I'm getting excited at this. But I'm, I'm still, I'm sorry, I'm still a fan. So it's just one of those things. 
Well, I think we better leave it there. We're, oh, we're 12 minutes into our... No, you know what? I want to add one thing. You talk about like anticipation and, and getting to say, let's get ready to rumble and feeling the crowd reaction. A lot of people don't know this, but um, and I'm saying this because now, of course, all ring announcers seem to have... Uh, they, have to, they, they want to have a tagline or a trademark line and that sort of thing. And I actually, years ago... I used to do all the fights on Showtime uh, up until 1991. And um, I actually was the first one to say, it's Showtime. And it didn't come from me. I didn't invent it. It came from uh, Jay Larkin, who's passed away. I think you might have known Jay, man. And uh, so I used to say, it's Showtime. And then I would say, let's get ready to rumble. But it's, it's really funny how that's evolved. And it's great for Jimmy uh, Lennon that it's become a, you know, a trademark for him. And he's really you know, developed it into a, a big thing. But... You know, all the announcers now, they have to have some kind of line like, let's throw leather or, you know, it's crazy. And I've even had guys come up and tell me, like, uh, I'm the guy that says, are you ready? I'm like, oh, really? You know, uh, you want to go to YouTube and go back 25 years ago when I was doing it for wrestling? And so <laughs> when this guy was in high school, but it's crazy. Everybody's got their own tagline now. Do you find that a bit strange that everybody feels the need, everybody feels like they have to have one? Because the very brief bit of it I did, the organisation I was working for didn't really want that anyway. It was, it was, it was IEBA. But my, my take on it was kind of, well, Michael Buffer's killed this for everyone. Because no, no one's going to come up with a better one than the one he's got. We can't say his unless we want to pay a hefty financial yeah, penalty. A tough, so Tough act to follow. Yeah, so well, let's just do the job. Just convey the information. Give it a bit of polish, a bit of flair if you can. But don't go searching for something if it's not really there. Yeah, I know. I, I, you know, it used to bother me when somebody would like try to uh, copy a phrase. or Because you want to be remembered for like saying things. I mean, the, the trademark stands by itself. But um, I would always... I would add a little something like uh, years ago I started to say official weight. Official weight, you know, 17 stone, whatever, or, you know, uh, officially weighing in at, you know, that because obviously the guys weigh a lot different in the ring than they did it. So I wanted to make it official. And within 10 days, somebody was saying officially weighing in at, you know, just so there's all those little things you well, want to add. that's a compliment too, isn't it, Michael, yeah. that, you know, you're, you're the guy to kind of follow to copy. Right, right. So... Uh, you know, um, uh, when a guy was undefeated, I, I started using a phrase where, you know, his professional record, a perfect one. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the phrase. Uh, it always amazed me, like, why would you want to announce a guy who has an undefeated record as by saying zero losses? Well, obviously, if he's undefeated, he has zero losses. So, you know, I, I try to eliminate redundancy in, in, in my announcements. And you know, I look at some old clips and I'm thinking, man, that was, you were pretty long-winded back there, Buffer. And I, I just, on my own worst critic, I try to, I try to get better. Um, some announcers will say over and over again, introducing, presenting, please welcome. That's all the same thing. And you can't say it seven, eight, nine times during, while you're introducing two different guys or introducing the judges. Or, so uh, I just always try to get better. Well, I... I yeah, I think less is more. Uh, I think people listen more intently when you're not talking as much. And, and that's true of any of us. Uh, I think that's true of any of us. One final thing. I'm, I've gone over our, our contractually agreed One more 15 final minute thing. extra. So, you know, I'm, I'm entering into murky territory here. Final, final question. This is the final, final thing. When you, whenever it happens, you decide to hang up the mic, can you then sell your tagline? 
to somebody else, or does it then cease to be yours? How does that work? Yeah, well, it, you know, it's a registered trademark. It's it's a legal legally owned phrase and belongs to uh, to me, uh, along with a couple other variations. I um, ready to rumble. It's let's get ready to rumble. Uh, let's get ready to crumble. Let's get there. There are a few others out there that I that I that I own and have paid off for me in. You know, commercials and movies and promotions and marketing, and so it's uh, it's something that can just be passed on to uh, my heirs and whatever and whatever they want to do with it. So, but one thing I, whenever we're contacted to use it, uh, it's uh, never let anyone else say it if it's a radio or a TV spot or something. But luckily, they still want me to be the one saying it, so it's, it's working out all right. Well, that's great. And, and thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much for your time. It's been really, really enjoyable, this. And, uh, yeah, we're all looking forward to the fights tonight. We're all looking forward to that moment when you unleash. Let's get ready to rumble. The O2 is just terrific for atmosphere. It always is absolutely packed out. It doesn't get much better than that place for watching boxing. So thanks very much, Michael. We'll catch you again down the line. We'll see you again yeah, later on tonight, Yeah, let's do it again. Good to see you guys, as uh, always. Uh, Matt, um, good to see you too. Nice I'd legs, man. <laughs> I need a high-tailed Ottawa Sky production meeting, actually. I'm already uh, a bit late. So I hope you've enjoyed this, everyone. And as usual, get onto iTunes and give us a rate, subscribe, and spread the word about Macklin's Take. And uh, we'll be bringing you another one of these very, very shortly. Sports Social Podcast Network.